a toast to our new college grad who fills us with so much joy, almost as much as when we're in our RV. Oh, the world is your oyster, kiddo, and ours too. Now that we're covered with Progressive, Dad and I can hop in our RV anytime we want. Might even splurge on a retractable awning. Oh, look out. <laughs> Sorry, what was I talking about? Protect your loved one with an RV policy from Progressive. Take as little as four minutes to see what you could save at Progressive.com. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company and Affiliates. Hey, everybody, it's Joe Trippy, and welcome back to That Trippy Show. Well, we finally have a good sense of how nearly every race in the country has ended up. Democrats sit at 50 seats in the Senate with the opportunity to pick up one more seat in the Georgia runoff. And Democrats are running much, much better than expected in the House. We called it, and very few in the national media did. Two people that have been on top of it nearly as long as we have, alongside Greg Sargent and others are Simon Rosenberg and Tom Bonnier. You know Simon. Tom's the CEO of Target Smart, leading data firm. Tom analyzed early voting numbers, numbers which kept telling the same story, no red wave. I wanted to have these guys on to talk about just what happened, why the national media got it so wrong, and what's next. Tom, Simon, welcome. Alex, where do you want to start? Well, guys, I mean, just let's go macro first. And and Simon, our listeners have heard from you about eight times in the last two months. So let's let's start with Tom. <laughs> and I know you guys have been taking this dog and pony show around. But Tom, what's your sense of of kind of the, the broad narrative of, of this cycle? Yeah, I mean, the broad mer- narrative beyond the obvious one that the mainstream media missed it um, was one of uh, – voters rejecting Republican extremism. Uh, And this is something that wasn't necessarily new after Dobbs, but I think Dobbs really crystallized that for a lot of voters in a way where maybe it wasn't quite penetrating. But, you know, Simon and I talk about this a lot. and, And Simon was out there, to his credit, before Dobbs earlier this year, pointing out that um, Republicans were underperforming. And that, you know, there was this forecast of this looming uh, inevitable red wave. And I think we were both looking at data, sometimes different data, sometimes the same data and saying, we're just not seeing it. And that doesn't mean that it's not coming. doesn't mean that it couldn't come, but as we got closer and closer, you know, it became less and less probable. And so in the end, that, that common thread really was this rejection of Republican extremism from what people saw in the January 6th hearings, from what people saw in the kind of candidates that the Republican Party was nominating, just really unqualified extremist candidates, uh, to, again, the Dobbs decision really, I think, crystallizing this narrative for so many voters in a way that like resulted in higher engagement. Is it sort of unique issue and that it had both a persuasive effect and a motivational effect. It turned out voters who weren't going to come out, younger voters, especially younger women, but it also persuaded a lot of independence. You know, one of the things that hit me very early on was it started to look a little bit to me like, look, when you saw the red wave in 2010 that, you know, crushed the Obama, you know, what we lost 63 seats in that midterm, the Obama midterm, where it didn't hit uh, and where it failed was when they had extremist candidates on the ballot in Delaware with 
Christine O'Donnell and Sharon Angle in, in Nevada, and they blew Senate seats where they had in that really big wave year. And that was one of the first things that started to hit me that made me start talking about the Red Mirage was that, you know, they were nominating all these extremist election deniers, you know, mega cult, even QAnon folks, not just in the Senate, but in House seats all over the place. You know, and that's where I started talking about the Red Mirage. And, you know, I think you guys both, I'd like to talk to you a little bit about this. You know, when you're going up against the entire planet thinking it's going some other way you do have occasionally some self-doubt but the more the two of you put data out there and simon sort of leading the the charge on uh with the loudest voice in terms of really putting the brakes on that it gives you you know gave you the confidence to hang with it and i know i'm not the only one who feels that way simon but you know i know other people that were out there trying to knock this down and explain what was really happening you know you get shaky at times but uh, a lot of people like me it never really did uh, because we were reinforcing each other and like the two of you and particularly the data that you guys were putting out, you know, the reasoned uh, numbers and uh, the, the reasoning that you applied to it uh, gave a lot of us a lot more confidence to just stay with it, no matter how, it, particularly at the end when the fake polls were going on. So Simon, I, over to you on, on, on what you think. Yeah. So listen, I, I, I've been thinking a lot for this interview because you know we in October of last of 2021 you and I had a conversation about what might happen in the election and what I laid out was I thought Republicans would be really harmed by their extremism that Democrats would have a strong agenda to run on that we had we were going to have very well funded candidates and we've just basically gotten better at field operations in, in recent years and so and we were going to be able to canvas again right after not being able to canvas in 2020, and that those three things for me meant that there was a high probability this was not going to be a typical midterm, and that um, and that we so we were open to that idea from the beginning, and I think that's the key here, right? If you started your basic orientation in this cycle as somebody who believed the Democrats were in trouble, um, and, and essentially discounting the ugliness of MAGA which I think was one of the huge errors that were made by analysts right. cycle, then you were, you were not open to seeing the data that we were seeing. And as I keep saying, the, the failure in this election wasn't in the data or in the polling, it was in the analysis of the data and the polling. And, and, and this is really an important distinction because in 2020, the polling was a little off. Ta you know, Part of what happened with us, right, is that Joe, you and right. I back in last October, Right, you know, sort of, we're open to the idea this would be an atypical midterm. And what I even said in that interview with you is that we were beginning to see the so-called decoupling between the Biden approval rating. You know, Biden's approval rating started really dropping in late in mid-August, and it kept going down until the beginning of November. So the election really changed during that period. And while he was dropping, the generic didn't move. And we had a conversation on this on this podcast about right. why that was and what it meant. Um, because that was the beginning, you could start to see this decoupling. And what we discussed was that it would be very easy for someone to be disappointed in Biden and still not vote Republican, right? That was not some kind of huge leap because the country had just voted Repub uh, against MAGA twice in overwhelming numbers in the right. last two elections. And so I think a lot of people had this basic take and a lot of also very prominent analysts kind of committed to the red wave narrative in the spring. And so they really wanted it to come back in order for them to look, you know, out of reputational 
you know, out of reputational management. I mean, they wanted to look right. I mean, it's a very human thing, right? And and I think, so I think they, I think a lot of people, including our friends and people that we know well, you know, really blew it. And um, and so, you know, hats off. I will say, last thing is that, you know, hats off to the grassroots of the Democratic Party who also stayed with it, right? I mean, the amount of money that they raised, the intensity of our campaigns. There's lots of evidence now that our campaigns in the House and Senate made an enormous difference in changing the outcome of the election, right? Outside of the the national, where there weren't national campaigns, you know, we did much worse. And so the intensity, our, the excellence of our campaigns, the, intent, the, the passion of our grassroots to fight MAGA, the money that they raised, the work that they did, the heroes of this election, this was a bottom-up victory for the Democratic Party. The heroes of this election, to me, really are the activists and regular Dems who put their head down despite all the crap and got this thing done. And it, it was just, I was very inspired. Part of what kept me going, Joe, was I was doing a lot of these, um, you know, I was doing Zooms with 50 people, 100 people working in the campaign, different groups. I did a big one with Indivisible and so on. And the passion and energy I was feeling in those meetings that I was doing gave me belief that there was something going on down below that was not being picked up by all of us in Washington. And so it's a long answer to your short question, but to say that, thank God the election came out the way it did. It would have been nice if we had won the House, but you know we really kneecapped Kevin McCarthy with this very small and very unmanageable majority that he has. And so even though we didn't win, the, the success that we had in the House defied history and will be very meaningful in the next two years. Yeah, we saw the same thing when uh, with the union, uh, you know, something that Alex and I had been working on to get a pro-democracy coalition of people, Democrats, independents, former Republicans, current Republicans, but all these grassroots folks coming together, applying their skill. You just could feel that energy out there and all of them made a huge difference. I mean, you can see it. Some of these heartbreakers were the were some of these candidates who didn't get the kind of national support they should or could have that were missing were going to miss by a couple thousand votes. Just shows you how the grassroots out there and the candidates and the campaigns made a big difference. And, and in some places, there's you know going to be some heartbreak, but it was an incredible midterm year. So, guys, Agreed. I I wanted to ask and and Tom, this was kind of the first election where everyone had really good access to early voting data like every single day uh, thanks to your target early tool I know we relied on it heavily I know if anyone had go if you click on the media tab on any assignments tweets it's just screenshots of it for like a month <laughs> um, <laughs> but you know talk to us a little bit about that tool obviously it was I mean we used it a lot one of the things we saw that had us really uh, I remember about Right three, four days into early voting in Wisconsin, we started looking at some of the gender gap numbers in some of the more rural counties, which kind of gave Joe and, and, and I and the Lincoln Project team kind of the sense that actually Evers might actually win it because it was like two, three points higher. It, it, talk us through that tool a little bit, um, how it came about and, and, and kind of how you saw it deployed this year. Yeah, yeah, thanks for that. Um, and yeah, we had millions of hits, and I think most of those were Simon. But, um, <laughs> <laughs> but he, he definitely no, no, no. Some a lot of them <laughs> were true, true, and true. Alex. Those were the rest. It was a team effort. It was a team effort. <laughs> yeah. So you know, our, our our notion on this is transparency. The idea that the more information people have, um, the better off we will be 
generically. Um, and, and that's a decision we made before we realized that it would be a powerful tool to counter misinformation or disinformation. We just didn't know at the point. But generally, look, in the world of political data, there's generally a lot of smoke and mirrors. It's just a fact where people want to, um, to be viewed as wizards and and geniuses and as much as i'd love that narrative the reality is nothing that we did was magical and so target early the idea was we knew that a large share of the electorate was going to vote before election day and this was an election where the biggest question in the end was with all these polls we're seeing knowing that every poll is based on a presumption of turnout and frankly speaking of lack of transparency there's so such a lack of transparency in polling in terms of what is their likely voter model? Who are they talking to? If every poll is based on an estimation of turnout, we should know what that estimation is based on. Is it 2014? Is it 2018? Is it something else? Are they accounting for the things we're seeing? And so basically what Target Early ended up being and why we were so happy to have it out there and so happy to see y'all using it and promoting it and getting the word out uh, was it was a counterweight. There were two worlds that were being presented. There was the world that was being presented in most of the mainstream media, which was looming red wave, bad polls for Democrats, things don't look good for Dems, here it comes. And then there was this other world, which was everything, it was all the hard data. And this is why I think we all felt, uh, not to speak for the group, but much more confident in this notion that, well, the probability of a red wave emerging was just narrowing with every day. If you look at it, we keep saying, as Simon said every day, and his, it might come, but we're not seeing it. No signs of it yet. And so as you get closer, and I think that's what Target Early allowed us to do was, you know, when it had a few million votes, we start talking about. I mean, now we're over 50 million votes cast. Target Early is still live, by the way, because, you know, as these states continue to report the, the mail vote that comes in, it's going to be live for the Georgia runoff. Um, it'll be a little bit trickier there because it's such a short early vote period. But really, that was the notion. Transparency, arm people with information that maybe a lot of the experts didn't want people to have. And in the end, I think this election and what y'all were spreading proves that that was the right move. I think if people, more people were aware of this, you wouldn't have this sort of demoralization that I think a lot of people did feel that really, you know, Simon was so effective in pushing back on his look. There's no reason to be demoralized. There's actually reason to be optimistic. Let's go get it. You know, the, what strikes me, though, is how the media missed it is perplexing to me. I mean, I understand the every midterm is a, you know, a wave and this is going to be a wave. But so if you didn't see it before Dobbs, OK, I, I got it. I understand you're going to go into red wave, you know, but then Dobbs happens and Kansas happens. And Kansas happens, and it made a, it gave him a little pause, I think, for a bit, but immediately went back to, to red wave. But then we kept pointing out, Simon pointed this out. I mean, I'm talking about all the stuff that was transparent out in the open. The five House specials in which every Democrat in those five House specials outperformed Biden in Democratic performance, every single one. We get to New York 19, another one, where Ryan beats Molinaro and— he outperforms Biden there and wins the seat. And at that point, Simon, me, I, people pointed out that there are 222 seats in America that have better Democratic performance than New York 19. 
So, you know, I mean, and then, so then, okay, you still, but the red wave, it's still coming. It's still coming. And Joe, Joe let, me, let me just jump in because I want to just, for posterity, let me just go through exactly what happened, right? Yeah. For, for how, what we saw, just so everybody understands, because this is really important, right? Because as I said earlier, the, the fault was in the analysis of the data, not the data, right? And this is right. really important. Let me tell you what we saw. And it's very simple, right? So, you know, I did a, a piece and I did a series of things in May and June prior to Dobbs uh, happening where I said, you're already seeing evidence that of Republican underperformance. And, and the argument I made was the combination of Uvalde, the Dobbs leak, the original leak, which was in May, um, you know, the January 6th committee hearings, right. that there was beginning to be all these reminders of the extremism of the Republican Party. They were already beginning to happen, right? And as I called it, it was the MAGA hangover. So there was always this question of like, if you're a swing voter, you know, are they still crazy, right? Have they gotten better? Can I, po if I don't like Joe Biden, can I possibly vote for them? And then in the spring, there began to be this congealing of the, or the return of MAGA or sort of the, very graphic reminder of, of the extremism of MAGA. And you could see it in the data prior to Dobbs, right? They were, they were already sort of down a little mm -hmm. bit. And then Dobbs happened. And then we had the five house specials, which where we overperformed our 2020 numbers by seven points. And then we had Kansas, which we overperformed by way more right. than that. And, and then where Tom and I sort of came together is he started doing this amazing analysis on the on the voter registration numbers, which showed a similar spike towards Democrats, particularly with women and younger women. And then we saw it in the candidate fundraising, which was we were beat. We were going into the final months of the election with six to one cash on hand advantages, which means that our campaigns are going to be stronger. You know, they didn't even have campaigns in right. some of these races. They just had the super PACs. And so we were open to the idea that this was going to be in a, what we kept saying was, you know, we don't know what's going to happen in the election. But so far, what we're seeing is Democratic overperformance, Republicans struggling. And then the early vote came. And every day right. I would, I you know, I would sit there twice a day waiting. I would text Tom, like, where the hell is the, you know, the update, right? And, and I would then do the analysis on it. And what was incredible was that every day the data was the same. You know, it was like, I kept waiting for it to get worse for us. I thought maybe there was a little bump in the beginnings of our field organization. And, you know, we were up 11 points in the early vote. We were four points ahead of, on election day, we were four points ahead of, of our 2020 numbers. We ended up being, I think, five and a half points ahead, which was very similar, by the way, to the seven points that we were ahead in the specials. And so what we were arguing was there was one election. There weren't, and, and this notion, so we, the other thing is that, what we saw in the polling is if you stripped out the partisan polling in the last three weeks, the polling was actually pretty good for us. Right. I mean, in the, in the last seven days, the generic was 1.4% for the Democrats when you average them together. We saw in the state polling, we saw you know very good polling for Democrats. We saw great Univision Hispanic polling. We saw good youth polling. And let me just make sure people understand this is that on Monday afternoon before the election, I did sort of my summary of where I thought we were. And using the publicly available polling, what I wrote was Arizona, Georgia, Pennsylvania, New Hampshire look like they're going to go down. Nevada is going to be too close to call. And and North Carolina, Wisconsin, and Ohio look a little bit Republican. And that's exactly what happened. And I'm not a genius. As Tom said, we just followed the data. We just That's what the data was showing. If you stripped out 
this these ridiculous Republican and you know data for progress is ridiculous polling that showed the polling averages dropping so much. If you stuck with those averages, you were looking, as Tom said, Tom said the most important thing is there were people that were looking at a completely different election than we were looking at, right? And you heard, final thing I want to say is what you heard, the thing to me that was the most amazing things that were said by analysts, including some very important analysts, was, oh, you know, you can't look at um, special election data. It's never predictive, right? Well, it's actually people voting. And if you're trying to analyze an election, how people vote is kind of what you usually do, right? And then we had the early vote and we had weeks and tens of millions of votes. We were told, oh, you can't take anything away you know, from the early vote. And these basic sort of dismissals of this voting data was sort of hard to comprehend yeah. that adult serious people, right, were doing this. And Tom was like, I think the most outraged is like, isn't an election about analyzing how people are voting? I mean, isn't that the whole point? Is it like polls are more important than people voting? When did that happen? Final point. If you go look at Tom's site, what you're going to see with the with the final vote is that in both the 2018 and the 2020 election, the final vote and the early vote was only like two or three points off, right? So it, it meant that the likelihood is that if we were up 11, let's say it's off two to three, four points, right? That means that's a plus seven election for the Democrats. And so the likely scenario, all we were doing was looking at the data and saying, this is the likely scenario. It's not the only scenario. Of course, there could have been a massive Republican election day vote, but if they hadn't shown intensity for the last five months, why were they gonna all of a sudden find their mojo on election day? And it just wasn't likely, right? So that that's that's the story of how I think we came to this, which is that every day the data kept saying to us was pointing in the same direction. Other people thought it was pointing in a different direction, and they were really wrong. Yeah. And there needs to be some kind of big public discussion about how virtually every right. media organization analyst you know, blew this. No, thing. that's what I was getting to, though, is that with all that other, in other words, you know, Ryan did win New York 19. We did outperform in all those yeah. districts. You know, the, the yeah. Kansas did happen. Registration, more women, you know, all these and then, and then to have it confirmed every day by Tom's data, on the, uh, uh, yeah. that's what I meant. That I was trying to get to the point you're making is that at this point, okay, now it's being confirmed twice a day, every day, and they still fell for the the fake thundering bunch of polls that were dropped by red pollsters and went right back into the wave. Although they never really came out of the big red wave, they were just so. I mean, the media, they were just sort of plugged into that. But, you know, Simon, there is uh, Tom, did you want to say something? Because I didn't mean to. Yeah, I, I mean, if I can just add one of my favorite anecdotes that I think illuminates exactly or at least underscores exactly what Simon was saying about this notion that, you know, we're talking about tens of millions of votes in, in special elections and then in early vote. And really, almost universally, the media and, and, and the data geniuses in the press would say you can't analyze that you can't learn anything from it they would mock the idea of uh learning from it but then when the new york times has a you know 70 person subsample in a poll that shows that independent white suburban women are swinging 30 points against us suddenly it's all anyone in the media is talking about and then they're writing stories about that right. you know we're talking about tens of people in a poll sample versus tens of millions of people who have actually voted and we're going to focus on the poll sample instead of the actual votes. It's just bizarre. Yeah, it is pretty amazing. And then, of course, I got to say this, like 
the way they hammered hopium, particularly on you and Simon. I mean, it was just <laughs> we got to come up with a, with a word for for what they all did, you know. Uh, you know, but it, it's just copium, 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 yeah. copium. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> yeah, I'm just so Joe. Uh, it's just amazing, Joe. I want you to. Tom and I want to recommend that you uh, call this discussion we're having. They did their own research. That's the that's the title of what we want you to. <laughs> well, is yeah, that, yeah, yeah. Is that, no, listen. I I just want for you. Yeah, I think that's right. I think that's listener, right. We're yeah, do for your that. listeners, I I think that what was surprising to us, right? I think in the last few weeks, because I had, if you remember, I had sort of called BS on the red wave in the spring, and then everybody kind of backed off for it. So I'd already gone through this process of people attacking me and claiming that I was crazy. And then everybody kind of congealed to the fact that, wow, this was going to be a close competitive election. And then what happened is this one New York Times poll that Tom mentioned um, sort of pushed everybody back into the red wave. And then they dumped all these polls to sort of show that the states were all moving together. And so the, the basic sort of media narrative became red wave, red wave. I will say that what was surprising to me as somebody who's been doing this for 30 years and dealt with many of these reporters was how just fundamentally dismissive people were right. of the, uh, yeah. as, as opposed to saying likely scenario, like likely scenario, red wave, but we have to take seriously this idea this could be a close competitive election. And it was just dismissed out of hand. And even to the point where Nate Silver like attacked us on the last Thursday before the election on his podcast for Hopium, for you know, being who are these guys? They're crazy, right? As opposed to the having the humility, given what's happened in recent elections where we've had so many surprises. And I think that where the other big miss was this cycle is everyone was so worried about missing the shy Trump voter from 2020 that they missed the shy Democratic voter of 2022. Um, and as I kept saying, is like people should be as worried about the miss that's happened in this election as much as they are the miss that happened in the last election. And and yeah. and it just it, the system, the system just never adjusted for it. And and I think it's really I, I the longer that I have these conversations and have time to think about it, and as somebody who's a former TV producer and writer and grew up in the journalism world, I, I think the level of, of um, media failure here was deeply yeah. profound and, and something that is deeply worrisome to me because I can't tell you how I probably, let's say, did 50 interviews in the last six months where the reporters basically said some version of you're full of shit, right? And, and you know, and it was shocking to me you know that i could this stuff could just be dismissed out of hand as opposed to it being looked at and given serious consideration in their in their trying to figure out what is you know and by the way the other thing that i think people really and this is where tom's site was so important is that this midterm was always going to be arguably the hardest midterm to poll of any recent election or any election to poll because of the vast number of new voters that had come into the electorate um in 2018 and 20 20, meaning that predicting who was going to vote was much harder in this election than it's been in any recent election because of the vast increase of new and irregular voters in, into the electorate. So there should have been, just as a basic sort of orientation, a far greater humility, particularly after what happened in Kansas and the, the five House specials. 
But you know, Simon, it's, it wasn't just the media. I mean, I would be talking with other Democratic consultants, and you'd, I'd say, look, I think we're going to hold the Senate, and I think the House is going to be very close, might even have an sh- outside shot at holding it, but it's, it's not going to be 20 seats, maybe 8 to 12, something like that. And they'd roll their eyes. The other Democrats in the room didn't believe it because of the red wave rap. And then, I mean, then you remember the last two or three days, we had Democratic talking heads on cable channels already talking about how what, who was to blame for us losing. I mean, it's just sort of played into the demoralization that was going on because they didn't follow the data. They got caught up in it, too. And I just think it does go to that all starts with Fox and the outrage machine driving the dialogue of the rest of cable follows up and even our own people. I mean, it's people who should know better. They just looked at the data and saw what was happening uh, to explain it. Instead, it was just a few voices out there trying to knock it down. You guys deserve credit for that. I mean, and a lot of other people, you know, three or four, a handful of other people were leading that fight with you. But um, it's just amazing to me how many Democrats sort of fell. I'm not talking about rank and file. They kept busting their rears out there, never let up. But it was just amazing to me to see so many just sort of fall into that rap and amplified it unwittingly or not on cable and in news stories. Yep. <laughs> the one thing I do want to talk to you, though. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> yeah it's no reason. To, I'm sorry. We got enough people mad at us. No reason to create some more. Uh, uh, <laughs> uh, uh, the one thing I did want to get, get a chance before uh, we I wanted you to talk a little bit, Simon, about. Uh, you know, sort of knocking down another myth thing that's been rolling around out there that they've been pushing is Democrats are losing the Hispanic Latino voter. And I know like you've been there, I mean, I, decades ago when you and I first met and sat down, you've been working on this. So you know more about it than just about anybody yeah. I know. Yeah. Uh, I wanted to have a chance to talk through a little bit of that and why you think that that's wrong too. Well, I think I'm going to do this fast because it's a it's a complicated subject but i think that the media narrative about democrats and hispanics needs to be rewritten in order to account for the enormous gains that we've made in the southwest and in california and so if you think about the the southwest texas and the southwest and california that part of the country really is the birthplace of the modern republican party right you had the conservative movement grew out of arizona and california you had nixon and reagan and the two Bushes, presidents, McCain, Goldwater, right? This heavily Hispanic part of the country is really where the the, the pre-Trump, right, the party from the 1960s to, to Trump really came out of. It's the birthplace of the modern Republican Party. And look what's happened in that region over the last several decades, right? California is now, you know, California, a one-party state, right? It used to, it's a place that gave us Nixon and Reagan. And you're seeing a similar transition happen now in the four southwestern states uh, that are competitive, Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico. New Mexico and Colorado are are almost functionally one-party states the way that California is now. Colorado wasn't even a contested battleground presidential state in 2004. We didn't even try to win there. We just conceded it to the Republicans. It was that Republican that recently. And, and you've seen now us making, you know, really historic gains in Arizona. I mean, two amazing stats that I, I keep using now is that in 2020, it was the first time in 80 years that we had won Arizona, Colorado, Nevada, New Mexico in a presidential election. And when we won in this election, uh, when we had both Senate seats and the governor's 
uh, seat in Arizona. It was the first time that that had happened in 74 years. So we're talking about an entire region of the country that used to be sort of the engine of modern Republican Party, now increasingly becoming a, a Democratic stronghold. Um, and you know, we and the stat I always talk about is that in 2004, you know, we in the, those four southwestern states, we didn't win any of them at the presidential level. We only had three Senate seats in that region. Now we have eight. We had seven House seats. Now we have 14. We'll see how many where the final count is. I haven't gone and looked. So we gained seven seats in that region, five Senate seats in that region, and now we can we won, you know, all four of those states. And so, you know, this dynamic of the heavily Mexican-American parts of the country becoming more and more democratic, and the way to think about this is that as the Hispanic population grows, even if we drop back a few points in the share of the vote, because the population's growing, our net margins with Hispanic voters continues to increase. And so those gains we're making with Hispanics is creating the... the the, is the sort of the center of this coalition that we're building in this region of, that includes, of course, African-Americans and whites and Asian, you know, AAPI voters, right? This coalition is becoming stronger and stronger and stronger. And, and in the last, you know, we've gone from being not being able to win anything in Arizona just a few years ago to now Mark Kelly is going to win his race by, you know, four or five points, which is just kind of an unbelievable achievement by the Democratic Party. And in the governor's race, we lost the governor's race by 15 points last time, and we're going to, you know, Hobbs, you know, Hobbs is going to win. So my basic story here is that, you know, we've been, the success that we've had in this region of the country and with Hispanic voters may be the single most important party-wide project that Democrats have had over the last 25 years. And we should be really proud of what we've been able to do, recognizing we still have more work to do in Texas and Florida. Cool. I just wanted to give a chance for our listeners to hear hear that because uh, I think it's really important to understand. Though, though uh, we're, we've got a little short on time uh, left, but one thing I did want to turn to just uh, briefly is Georgia. I mean, that's going to be clearly a you know we're all turning our attention there. Um, Tom, you're going to be be following the early vote there. Is that that right? Yeah, we will. Target earlier will be back up. Um, which is exciting. But at the same time, you know, because of the voter suppression bill that Kemp passed um, in the past year, you know, as we know, it's a much shorter window. It was a four week election window, which means vote by mail is not an option. You know, vote by mail went two to one Democratic in that election. Um, early in person is only going to be limited, even though there are lawsuits about that right now. It looks like it'll be about a week of early voting. So, um, you know, what we're seeing on target early, there's not a great benchmark. I mean, to the point when we talk about these polls, you know, they're best if you calibrate them against hard data, we're not going to have a great sense. Is this overperforming or underperforming? We will get a sense in the early vote, early in person, like if we're seeing a lot of, because the early in person tends to be much more even in Georgia. It was in the, the general election. If, um, if that's tilting one way or the other, it's going to be a good sign. Because I think both sides, you know, the, the theory on the Republican side, you know, maybe Democrats aren't as fired up because this isn't about control of the Senate. But the same could be said for Republicans at this yeah. point. Are they really going to be that fired up for Herschel Walker? Yeah, exactly. Um, you know, without Kemp on the ballot to kind of lift him up, I think that's challenging for Republicans. We'll see. Simon, what do you think? How does Trump's announcement affect anything in Georgia? You think it will or, or you know, what's, or what's your take on Georgia anyway? I just, you know, I'm optimistic, which has been my position for the last year. <laughs> um, I agree with what Tom said. I mean, I, I think on balance, 
a one-on-one -on -one race is bad for Walker because they could hide. It was easier for them to hide Walker's problems uh, in a more crowded environment, and um, you know, with not just with the governor's race, but um, you know, more broadly, you know, they and so this is a one-on-one -on -one race. This is kind of a nightmare for the Republican Party because it's going to spend. There's going to be a month reminding all voters all across the country of of MAGA and how bananas they've got, gotten. And so, you know, they're going to fight it out. They have to. I mean, McConnell just announced they're going to drop a lot of money into the race. But I, I feel pretty good. I mean, I'd rather be us than them, which is the position I've been in for the last year. I'd rather be us than them. But follow uh, Tom's site, Target Early, uh, to get updates when the data starts coming in. Yeah, we're going to put a, a link to the site in, in our show note for everybody so you know where to follow them. If you haven't been doing that, you should. But I still do want to get just a take on the Trump thing. I mean, I, I guess in one sense, it's going to be uh, kind of fun to watch them, DeSantis and everybody beat each other up. But how, do, how does that affect going into the Georgia and, and then into 2024? Do, do you think it changes anything that he's in, in now? I'm just trying to get a sense of... Like, you know, we've exceeded expectations in 18 and 20 and 22. And so our message, I, would it, something's working here. And uh, and a lot of it, I do think, is the extremism that Trump, you know, fuels in the party. How do you see him getting in affecting things? Or or do you think it's kind of like turn the page? Tom, why don't, you, why don't you start? Yeah, well, I mean, specifically in Georgia, Trump has been a liability. Right. I, I mean, obviously, he, he lost by a very narrow margin. But then uh, when you look at the January runoff two years ago, um, you know, he certainly did not help Republicans in those races. Um, he's been a liability around the country in terms of the candidates that he convinced, as we were talking about, to get into these races, the Dr. Oz's of the world and frankly, the Herschel Walker's of the world. Uh, and so, no, I don't I don't think him. The more he is out there, the more Republican extremism is in the forefront of which he is the banner holder, the worse things are for Republicans. Doesn't mean that we can, you know, dismiss him or not take him seriously. Obviously, um, you know, he's benefited from being underestimated from the beginning. I think as Republicans learned, should have learned in 2016, they all thought someone else could take him down or he'd just blow up by himself. I see people starting to say that now, too, that DeSantis is going to take him out. So you know, we don't have to worry about it. I'm not so sure, you know, I, I, I wouldn't undercount it, but in terms of the impact he has, no, he's been a liability for the Republican party from the beginning. Yeah, Joe. And I'll just add that. I, I think just looking forward, one of the reasons, you know, I've written about this, that I, this was a stay the course election. I mean, very few incumbents lost anywhere. And it was stay the course for two reasons, right? One is that we did a good enough job. There was, you know, that Joe Biden's been a good president and that people felt that you know, coming out of COVID, the economy actually has recovered, you know, things, you know, we're finally getting back to something that feels normal. And then you're asking me to vote for crazy. And like, I don't want to vote for crazy. I want normal, right? And so I, this basic, this sort of return to normalcy was actually a really important driver of this election that I think a lot of the polling really didn't probe properly because we kept being told that nobody cares about COVID anymore. And of course, that was always ridiculous, right? That nobody cared about COVID. We had just been through this incredible co collective trauma. And I think that, you know, it is objectively true that Joe Biden has done a good job in managing all this. Every country in the world has had a difficult time managing this. It's been choppy everywhere. And even what happened with inflation over the last year, it was largely driven by Russia and by, you know, them sort of fueling global inflation 
through rising gas and uh, energy prices and rising food prices, which was something Putin was doing as a strategy to weaken the West and the United States and their commitment to Ukraine, right? So I think what was one of the big misses in this election that I've written about a lot and I just haven't been talking about recently is that I always felt that the role of inflation was exaggerated in the way, you know, and this was a miss in the way that the abortion receding was a miss and the red wave was a miss and dismissing the specials and the, you know, the early vote was a miss. And it was a miss because when you ask people, who do you blame for the inflation? Only about a third of voters blamed Biden. So it meant that people could say they were concerned right. about it, but then it didn't become material to their vote, right? And so so I, it's why I always believed, and I, I wrote a whole piece on this. The last piece I wrote on this was in May, where I said, listen, I just think the media is missing the real dynamic yeah, of inflation yeah. here. And that it meant to me that the the election had the ability to be to change because inflation wasn't as potent as the Republicans were saying, and the right-wing you know, media machine was spinning every day. So I do think that looking forward, I'll, I've talked a lot today, but just the, the last thing I'll say is that I'm very optimistic about our chances in 2024, because there's almost no scenario where the Republican Party doesn't look really crazy over the next two years. And Joe Biden, and we will have done a good job. So that basic dynamic that play, that created this election is very likely to continue particularly because the abortion issue, I think, will continue to push many, many voters away from them. Um, and, and so I, I, remain, I feel like the basic, we're still in the same election right now you know, for the next two years, and that election went really well for us. So I remain very optimistic about what's going to happen in this election. Yeah, you know, Simon, Alex and I saw some focus groups with white suburban men, and uh, the moderator, you know, What's the what's wrong? And, you know, inflation, inflation, gas prices, you know, they're, they're just typing hot about it. And these are white suburban white men. And, you know, so is when he asked the question. So, you know, what's causing that? Who do you blame? I was already I was getting there already to watch them go into Biden, Biden, Biden. And in four groups, not one person blamed Biden. It was covid supply chain russia invading ukraine they all had a reason was it their top concern hell yeah i got to figure out how i'm going to pay my bills but there was just not this i mean the same thing you're pointing out they they and when we did get there to the biden part of it you know it, it's a tough situation he's doing the best he can i don't necessarily agree with everything he's doing but it wasn't it was just not the big inflation bomb that the media thought it was but Getting back to Trump, you know, my view is, and then we'll, we'll close this up, but, you know, my view is, and I've said that my whole mantra during the entire year was they'll keep doing the crazy, and if we keep doing the work, we'll win this thing. I still think that's there, and it doesn't even matter if Trump pulls out or something, or if he isn't. I mean, the problem is MAGA and Trumpism is not going to die when Trump's finally, you know, taken off the scene it's gonna be it's still gonna be out there there's they've got a ton of them in the house we're probably gonna see a bunch of chaos i mean we have the chaos president we're about to have the chaos house uh for the next two years so i think the it's the same thing they're gonna keep doing the crazy with or without trump and we just got to keep doing the work and that's not just the grassroots it's not just the campaigns but it's, we've got to start fighting the media this you know the way the media 
works right now in terms of covering this stuff and not having a bias that's for democracy, for for what's really going on out there and explaining it to people. But look, I really appreciate you guys both uh, being on. Alex and I were really excited to have you on. Uh, so thanks, Tom, and thanks, Simon, for coming. Thanks, everyone, for listening to That Trippy Show. We'll include links to where you can find more from Tom and Simon in the show notes, and we'll be back next week. Also, I just want to tell everybody, this podcast is now part of Resolute Square. It'll still be free, but we're trying to create a new force in the fight against uh, autocracy. If you missed our big announcement, here's what you need to know. There's a bunch of us that are taking a new approach to take on the MAGA media outrage machine. And we'll have a, a link to that so you can sign up. And if you want to subscribe, that'd be great. Thank you all. And we'll see you next week. I am Anthony Scaramucci, and you may know me from my career on Wall Street or my 11 days in the White House. They say you can't teach an old dog new tricks, but I'll tell you, if you read books, you can. I love to read, and my new podcast, Open Book, is about just that. Each book is this curated source of knowledge, which we can buy for $10 and digest in 10 hours. Together with some of the brightest minds and authors out there, I'll turn the pages on everything from history and psychology to finance and tech. You can find Open Book with Anthony Scaramucci on Apple, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts. I hope to see you there.